Welcome to the Game Changers for Good podcast. I'm Wahoo, and this is a podcast where I interview notable and innovative game changers whose work has great social impact. In each episode, I will talk to guests who have, in some way, changed the game and made great contributions in their field of work inciting impactful social change. All in the hope to understand who they are, why they do what they do, and by the end of the episode, besides learning about the beliefs and experiences that shape them, we are able to also tease out their strategies and tips, their secret sauce as a social impact practitioner. So sit back, relax, and let's jump into our episode today. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? Or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity? Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia. Hello, my dear listeners, all 1.3 million of you. Well, <laughs> eventually. Thank you for listening. This is the first episode of the Game Changer for Good podcast. And I am very excited to be talking to our very first guest, Tama Pillay. Tama is the co-founder and advocacy director of Undi18 Malaysia. He co-founded Undi18 with Kira Yusri, and it's a youth-led movement dedicated to democratic reforms. Undi 18 by now is very well-known movement in Malaysia that has successfully advocated for the amendment of Article 119, bracket 1, of the federal constitution to reduce the minimum voting age in Malaysia from 21 to 18 years old. So if you are 18 years old and you're eligible to vote in the next Malaysian election, it is partly thanks to him and his team. He led the initiative to organize Parliament Digital in 2020, the first youth-led virtual parliament sessions in the world. Since then, he has been busy creating and running multiple advocacy programs, including the 111 Initiative, a youth campaign to build towards 50% women's representation in parliament, Senate 18, a campaign to lower the age of eligibility to become a senator from 30 to 18 years old, and Undi Saksama, a campaign for equal democratic representation for every Malaysian voter. He was named one of Prestige Malaysia's 40 Under 40 in 2019, and also Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia 2021 for his efforts in championing youth voting rights in Malaysia. Tarma is a master in building effective policy advocacy programs. So please enjoy this in-depth conversation with Tarma Pillay. All right, welcome to the uh, Changemaker for Good podcast. Uh, and thank you so much for being the first guest, really. 
right? Um, so I'm very excited about this episode today uh, because we have had uh, many, many uh, conversations in the past and I've, I've always gotten uh, a lot of different perspective from you. A lot of, uh, I would even call wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a lot of unique views and that's why I'm so excited to be sitting down with you uh, to have this chat. But first, I would really want to start somewhere uh, that I don't think you would expect. Mm. So I have uh, done some research. Okay. I have gotten uh, I've, I've gotten to talk to someone who is a good uh, source, I believe. And I want to just start with this story, right? I just want you to tell me about this. Uh, so I'm going to give you a prompt and you just okay. tell me what this is, okay? So it's about eating brain. Okay, all right. Eating wow. brain wow. Or, okay. or sago worms. <laughs> I okay. believe there are two different occasions. Yes, correct. You can start with anyone or just tell us about what is this eating brain thing? Wow, what a way to start. Um, I think, okay, firstly, thank you very much for choosing me as your first guest. Uh, I think uh, the conversations, I hope, will be quite interesting. Um, so the story of eating sago and eating brains um, one was in Sarawak, so of course you when you when you go to uh, Sarawak and also in Sabah, you know you you always want to try out their own local delicacies, right? You want to try this out, right? And um, and I think over here the the story of eating the brains was very simple. It was I went to hot pot and it was on on offer, and I was like, you know what? Let's try this out. I think for me. I realized, I mean, this is the mentality that I have, right? I realized that we have a very short time on, on earth, right? So why do we deny ourselves the opportunity to try these sort of experiences um, just because we are squeamish about it or just because we have not experienced it before? So if we try things out, if we don't like it, okay, then we don't do it ever again. But if we happen to enjoy it, then that's a great thing, right? You just discovered something that adds value to your life. So I think that's how I tend to go into my experiences with a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to food, where whenever I go to a foreign country, uh, a different place, or even in Malaysia, if there's a unique experience um, in terms of eating brains or eating sago worms or eating crickets or eating uh, frog or snake, whichever it is, I think my mentality is, why not? Let's try it out. I don't like it. I don't do it again. But at the very least, I've experienced it to tell the story. So it's to try. The, the key here is like, whatever it is, if it, even if it sounds uh, disgusting or uh, challenging, you try. Oh, that's very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. It really speaks to the sense of adventure that you have about life, I, I believe, right? Uh, in a way, I would say so. Um, I, I think that sort of mentality advises a lot of the stuff that I do where I try not to ask myself too much about why, right? Because when you ask yourself why, you have so many self-limiting reasons of why you have to justify to do something. Often, the nicer and faster question is to ask, why not, right? Are you really going to get hurt by this? Are you going to get harmed by doing this thing? And if you realize, you know what? There's no real harm. Like, why not, right? And if there's no real impact, then why not just try it out, right? Um, you may not gain anything um, or, and, and you know, it, it, uh, it may not benefit you or it could bring you great pleasure, right? So who knows? Why not just try it out? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, you know, from here, I want to do a complete segue 
For sure. to something else. We're gonna start uh, right back at uh, maybe when you're young. Yeah. So I would really love to go into uh, your background. Sure. Right? Let listeners kind of find out who you are by looking at your background. So who you are, where do you come from? What's mm-hmm. your background? Uh, where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. Can you start with that? Sure. Um, so I'm currently 29 years old, right? Um, and I am a city boy. You know, I, I grew up in uh, in Ampang. Um, then I moved to Cheras. So I've been in the Klang Valley for my entire life, uh, going to schools uh, here. Going to first, I went to for a very short period in uh, a vernacular school called Liming. Then I went to a lot of um, national schools back to back, and then I ended up in uh, a boarding school. I think my background in terms of my family is that um, I I come from a single parent household. So my mom, uh, my mom is a single parent. I think she struggled a lot to raise us. So I was very lucky that we had a good um, support network. Uh, my my grandmother stepped in. Uh, my uncle and my aunts uh, stepped in in terms of helping us out. Myself, my sister, in terms of how we were growing up. And I think that was very having that supportive family unit was very valuable where even though we were low income even though there were struggles and there were challenges but we had each other's back and i think that was very very helpful um in you know in getting to where i am today because there's always this emphasis that no matter how difficult it is we will still make sure that you have a good education we'll still make sure that you know you do well in your studies you you are you're a good student so that you're able to excel get scholarships that kind of stuff. So I think that was something that was very important for me that I felt that there was a responsibility that I had to do well so that I could help my family and I could return the favor. So I do think I am returning the favor now uh, in some ways. I think in many ways, right? Uh, I am helping out my family now. and But I do think that that uh, initial help and that strength from the family is, is something that is very important for me. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a little bit of uh, background, I guess, yeah. You, you well. You mentioned that you are from a, a single parent uh, family, right? Yeah. Do you think that uh, being in a single parent family has shaped you in a way that's a bit different from if you would have two parents? But you did you did say that you had lots of support from extended family as well. Correct. So I would say that the 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 most challenging part about being in a single parent family is that. Your, you know, my mom was always out working, and when she came back home, she was very tired, because you know you're you're working so hard. You have to wake up early in the morning to prepare food for us. You know, prepare our our clothes and our clothes and all that, so that myself and my sister could go to school. And then immediately after, she would get ready and go herself to work. Right. So I think that was very tiring, of course. So for me, I I was very glad that we had. Other members, uh, especially my grandma, who was a hugely instrumental part in uh, in my growing up. So I think uh, having that family unit was very important. I I do believe that maybe for a lot of um, single parent um, children, I do think that having a lack of a father figure, perhaps that may have been a may have been an impact. Um, I don't think for me, I, I was quite lucky that um, that I did end up going into a all male boarding school, right? Um, I do think that that helped me a lot in terms of learning, identifying, and also understanding what is masculinity, right? What is it to be, you know, be your own father figure, be your own, you know, figure of strength. You know, how do you define yourself, and how do you act 
in the way of the world because often you know how children grow up is role modeling right you look at your parent and be like okay I want to be like this person because this person is someone I look up to and that's where your parental figures come in so I do think that that was something that I may have lacked growing up but thankfully uh, as a result of going to this boarding school you know it sort of sorted itself out uh, eventually so I think that was a bit lucky in terms of how the gaps closed in terms of my development okay so yeah. uh, since you mentioned that yeah. uh, that is an area I really love to explore but because I think we uh, we did have a conversation about this and I find the stories that you share about your time in the Royal Military College yeah. RMC really really interesting yeah um, perhaps then we should uh, talk a bit about that can. Um, if you can share how was your experience mm-hmm. being in a boarding school uh, away from home away from family and a military school at that right yeah. so it would have very very stringent rules I'm imagining and uh, you know you did tell me about this experience you have but you know you can tell me about things in general yeah uh, and also some of the incidents you know we can go into uh, for that sure. really really has an impact on you yeah for sure um, so a little bit of a background I guess I think that will be useful so I I entered a military boarding school uh, when I was in Form 4 uh, after my PMR exam so um, it was a it was an application process. It was actually quite selective to get into. You had to after your PMR, you had to get um, good amount of grades. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you have to get a minimum of six A's um, to be able to enter. You had to go through physical tests. You had to run two point four kilometers, do certain number of push ups, certain number of pull ups um, during the selection camp. So there was quite an intense selection mechanism, just to show how I guess prestigious or how. Um, sought after it was to get into this uh, the school. Sorry, if if I I may interject. Sure. Now, uh, who actually decided, you know, for you to go into a uh, 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 boarding military school? Is yeah. it your 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 mom? Is it from so a recommendation or is it yourself? I I would say that uh, my mom found out about it and she uh, recommended and she suggested that you know what? How about I try out and go for this. For me, I, I thought that um, it was something that I was interested in trying out for two reasons. One was because, of course, uh, the idea of getting scholarships, right? Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when you come from a low-income background, your only way to really change your life is to get a good, you know, uh, get, good, get, get a good career. Uh, and that means you have to go get a good degree. I think that, that part matters, right? So I think that was one element uh, where if you go to this boarding school, you have access to a lot of these opportunities. But the second thing was, of course, you know, being a young person, um, I think the idea of militarism, the idea of being in, in the Navy, uh, for, for me personally, I think that was very, very attractive. Um, I remember playing with all these action figures when I was a kid, and I, was, and I thought to myself, wow, that's something I would love to do. So if I join the, uh, the Army or the Navy eventually, you know, as a result of joining uh, RMC, I'll be like, you know what? I'll be more than happy. So I think that was my mentality at that time. So which is why when uh, when my mom suggested, hey, this is an opportunity that's there, I was like, yeah, let's try this out. Let's go for it, right? Uh, but of course, it's not an easy process. It's actually, it was actually very, very challenging um, because when you enter a military boarding school, um, the lifestyle completely changes, 
right? And it, there was a number of way where, ways where it was different. So, for example, the composition of people were different. So, I came from a urban um, sekolah menengah kebangsaan, right? So, when you're in an urban one, you look at your classmates, they are extremely multiracial, right? You know, if there was a one Malaysia propaganda, you could just take a video of my class and be like, wow, Malaysia is a beautiful place, right? It's, it was like that, right? You know, um, so we had a very balanced number of, um, you know, uh, Malay students, Chinese students, Indian students, right? Uh, so we had, we had a good good balance. We had, you know, we had all sorts of, you know, um, people coming together and we were good friends. There was no sort of racial uh, friction between them. So I thought that was something that I was used to. And the moment I go, went into um, this boarding school, immediately I was a minority, right? In my batch, there were roughly only about um, 6 to 10% of non-Malays in the entire batch. Um, it also meant that there were many, many um, people who were in my batch who had never met a non-Malay before, right? Many of them came from places like uh, Kelantan or Trungano where it was mono-ethnic, right? Um, so all they had and all they understood uh, about non-Malay Malaysians was that, oh, okay, these were stereotypes that we had. Right, that Indians spoke in a certain way, Chinese, you know, acted in a certain way. Right, they, they they only had like these very racial stereotypes. So I think that was one thing that you had to overcome. Right, how do you bridge that gap? Number two, of course, was the fact that you're away from your family. Right, and that means you have to be completely self-reliant. It meant that you have to you have to wash your own clothes, you have to iron your own your your you have to iron your own clothes, you have to get everything perfectly ready. You have to study on your own. You have to be self-disciplined. These are all things that you had to adapt and learn by yourself. And I think that was quite a, quite a challenge to learn and, uh, and pick up, right? Considering that, you know, when you're at home, you only learn the bare minimum, right? You only know the, the basic stuff of like, okay, let me clean up my shoe, right? I didn't even iron my clothes before that. <laughs> so go, jumping in was a huge culture shock. I think that was a big challenge. But also, I think the, the last thing was just the lifestyle itself. It was so physically intensive, right? Every um, evening we would go on, we would go on a run, right? I would have to wake up. This was in my junior year, right? Every morning I would wake up at about four or four thirty a.m. Uh, every morning, right? Uh, get up, go downstairs, uh, take a bath in like the freezing cold water. The water came straight from like the, the like a nearby hill, freezing cold. Get up, get ready, go and report to our senior and say that okay, we are all ready and uh, and. Uh, uh, with all our uniforms and then we start cleaning up the entire the entire floor right so that was our routine we clean up in the morning if let's say we did not clean it up perfectly then we will get punishments we'll get uh, you know push-ups um, uh, knuckle you know uh, all sorts of physical punishments and then we would go to class sweaty and tired so imagine like your entire day is de is designed around this sort of military regiment and when you eat food, I think the even the food was something you had to get adapted to because it was not your home food. It's not a food that you're familiar with. So I, I, I know that during the first few months of me being there, I think I lost a good 15 kgs um, just I think over two months or so. So I think that was a huge change in terms of how I was as a person, even immediately. But of course, the larger challenge with an institution like this is the culture of, um, of I think ragging the culture of uh, physical punishments um, so we had there was a many many incidents of, uh, of that so you, when you put all of this together right it was a real pressure cooker a real challenge for you to be able to survive and um, and 
and not even thrive, right? You're just trying to survive. So I remember at one point, I was just thinking to myself, I just want to survive one more week, right? And I just took it one week at a time because it, there was a certain routine on a week-by-week -week basis. So I told myself, I'm going, to I'm going to hold on for one week and a week and what, a week. What are the most stressful things that, you know, makes you feel like, okay, I have... You know, I have to come up with a strategy like to deal with it. I have to look at it week by week. What are the most intense pressure? I think the the challenge that you all face uh, is together, right? I think that's something that they that they emphasize, where where everyone has this collective, as I mentioned, you know, the shared um, stress where you're studying at the same time you are um, you're maybe not getting the the tastiest food at the same time you are going through all this physical training and all that stuff. But I do think that the element that makes you feel very alone is that one is that is that um, that element where you intensely feel that you are a minority, right? And I'm and I never felt that ever in my entire life that I was someone different, that I am basically alone over here, right? So there was that extreme racialization that I felt, um, you know, uh, then, and I think that made it very difficult because when you are alone and when you have tough times you want to go to a community that can relate to you, right? But when this community or this group was essentially racialized and hostile, you feel very alone. I think that was one difficult part. Um, of course, the other element is that there's a culture of seniority. Um, and so when there is in a lot of punishments and when you get in trouble, you know, you really have to be mentally strong enough that you can accept, you know, when you get scolded at, when you get punished, you got to be like, you know what, I can handle this. Tomorrow is going to, going to be a different day and all these issues will be done by tomorrow. You just got to tell yourself that this, that this problem is now, I just got to face it and get over it. So I think that was something I had to develop over time, but not many people were able to adapt. We had, if not mistaken, we had like a 30 to 40% uh, dropout rate, you know, within the first three to four months, like 30-40% of the entire batch just dropped out. So I would say that that mentality is something that I had to learn over time in order for me to survive like my junior year. So mm -hmm. definitely not easy. Yeah. So can we go into the, the ragging part? Sure. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate. Uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to over um, dramatize, dramatize it. Right. right? Uh, because I do think that there are also other schools with, uh, with a similar culture. And I do know that right now um, in, in, uh, in, in, my, in the school, there is less of that culture now at the moment. But at that time, there was a real, uh, you know, there was a real uh, tradition where if let's say you were found to, uh, you know, to mess up or you did something that was wrong, right? Uh, not only will you get this exercise kind of punishments, but you also get, um, you know, certain level of uh, like uh, you get beaten up, for example, right? You get punched, you get kicked. Uh, this was something that was quite normal over there. And of course, how it was done was in a manner that uh, was not excessive, right? So they were very careful that, you know, you, you don't see your bruises on your face and all that stuff. So it's, it's only in areas that's, that's not visible. So I think this was the part that there was a bit of, uh, I guess there, there was a bit of uh, um, a culture and tradition that, that informed how this ragging was done. Um, yeah, so I, I I don't really want to go into too much detail. I think because I think that will just uh, I, it will just make things a bit more a bit too uh, messy. I think, but the, I think that was the that was the the, the culture that was accepted um, as being part of the school at the time. 
you know when we when we talk about this uh, in our conversation, right? You you somehow are able to process those uh, incidences and and somehow become stronger. Yeah. Right. So I would really love for you to to share that, like you know, how does it shape you? You know, what do you gain from it? Like yeah. you know, there are, there are people who experience things like this and. And uh, you know they they might become a bit broken, and yeah. you know they they lose t- uh, lose trust on some things or some yeah. people, but you seem to have gained from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can share, for sure, I do think that every person has their own trauma, right? And each person's trauma is valid, right? Um, but I do think that different people process and go through that difficult challenges and this trauma in in. Um, in their own individual personalized manner. So for me, at least, when I when I experienced um, you know these incidents, um, and I went and I went through um, a lot of these challenges, right? The physical punishments, mm. uh, you know, some of the beatings and all that stuff. I think that gave me an idea that one is I'm able to handle it, right? I think that there's always this this mentality often in in life, right? You always feel, hey, I'm not strong enough to handle this but whenever I come up with issues that I face now like today I think to myself you know what I've handled worse things back then I'm strong enough to handle this today right so you always have that frame of reference where you're like okay I'm able to push through whatever challenges I'm facing now because I've gone through worse so I think that's one element right I think the also second element is that you have this mentality where you I think for me, I, I accept that these things will pass, right? Whether it's good times, whether it's bad times, it will pass. And the most important thing is that what are you fighting for and what are you pushing towards? I think that is also an, an important mentality, right? So similar to when I said, said just now, right? I was trying to look at things at survival on a week-by-week basis. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think it is also something that I use now where no matter what hiccups or what temporary challenges it is I realize as long as I have a larger plan or a larger goal that I want to try to achieve these temporary setbacks are just temporary setbacks they do not define me they do not stop me they slow me down maybe but I will overcome right I think that is something that that, that, that was very powerful that I managed to learn from that situation um, and I think it's 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 been quite helpful nowadays, right? You know, when you no matter what challenges you face, you you remember that and you're like, okay, I can overcome this. Yeah, I I can imagine, and especially with the you know some of the things that you're trying to do, right? I mean yeah. the the scale of it, uh, you know, starting a company, running uh, you know so many campaigns, movements that want to change the country, essentially, yeah. right? Uh, I would I would see how how much of cha- uh, you know the challenge mm. that you can face and and what this attitude of seeing the big picture mm-hmm. right that you, you know all these challenges when you face it it will pass and there's something to aim for um, that's really a big lesson that mm-hmm. uh, you know someone can learn when they're young uh, besides that right, I just want to uh, I'm, I'm quite curious when you go through uh, training like that right a couple of years spend a couple of years in, in, a, in a boarding school uh, which is so strict with so many rules. Um, do you bring all those discipline now? You know, now into your life. How does it look like? Mm. You know, are you such a disciplined person because of that experience? That's a very interesting question, uh, and I really like that question because um, I think different people react differently to that. 
I know that there are some people who become extremely rule-abiding and extremely disciplined, but I have to be quite honest, it's had an opposite impact on me. <laughs> um, I realize rules are able to be broken, right? I think that's right. what I realize, you know, mm. that even in the most so-called stressful and tough of situations, one is you can bend the rules a little bit, right? There are, there, you know, there are, there are things that you can, you can sort of play around with, right? That's, that's one. Number two is that I also realized that some rules are just rules in your mind, right? They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're not real, right, in a way. That essentially the, the punishments for it is bigger in your imagination than in reality, right? I, I think so. I think that's also been one of the things that has helped me sometimes um, in terms of pursuing my activism where... Sometimes you you know we have so much fears, right? We can't speak up against the government. We can you know we can't go down and protest. We can't go and uh, do you know we can't go and argue about certain things, right? And in the end, you realize this that the consequences are mostly imaginary, right? And we create this self limitation because we are so afraid. But in reality, the consequences are actually very small. And most people can actually handle the consequences, right? So I think that's something that I've learned that even in that prejudicial environment, you can break certain rules and accept the consequences, right? So that's something that, you know, I think more people should also think about, right? Like which rules are real and which rules have huge consequences, right? Like for example, don't be corrupt, don't do a crime, right? I think these, these are things that we can all agree on, but speaking up, you know, um, voicing out your opinion, going out to a protest, right? Uh, pushing back against government policies, right? Most of these things are self-limiting beliefs, right? And maybe not, not just rules, but also what, what, we, what we define as our own life and we define as our, our own rules, right? I can't achieve this. I can't push for that promotion, right? These are all self-limiting beliefs that it's all in our imagination. So how do we break through it? So I think ironically, you know, I, it's, I've learned the opposite um, you know, and 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 being less of a less of a rule following person. Well, which is a, a great point of view as well. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, if you want to be uh, an activist, right, on any issues, that yeah. seems to be the prerequisite that you need to be able to look at uh, the current rules, laws, and say that okay, it can be changed. It, it yeah. needs to be uh, broken down sometimes and introduce yeah. something new and something better, right? Correct. Exactly. Okay. So. After your uh, experience in RMC, um, yeah. you did continue your education by doing a degree in uh, mining engineering. Am I correct? Correct. And this is in uh, US, the US. Yes, correct. And you you also worked two years uh, yes. in in mining, in engineering, in engineering, yes, in engineering. Okay. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about this because this. For people who, who know you now yeah. and look at the work that you do, this seems a bit out of place. Yeah. Right. So what has that experience given you? Uh, maybe the experience of being in the US or studying engineering. Yeah. Does it add on to what you're doing now? Yeah. Um, okay. Firstly, just to be very clear, I think, um, I think one of the challenges when you come from you know, a, a background like mine um, you know, like, is that you don't have access to information. I think this is something that I think we can all agree with, you know, like, like the wealthier you are or the more privileged you are, you have, it's not just access to capital, it's also access to information, right? So I think back then, you know, how I made this, these decisions was like, okay, I didn't want to be a doctor. 
I don't want to be a lawyer because it's, it's too much a, too much of a stereotype. An engineer is okay, right? And among these engineering, let me choose something a bit unique, which is mining engineering. So I think that was my very simple thought process. I never considered things like even geology. I didn't know that was an option. I didn't th- consider things like finance, right? So I think these were so many sectors and segments that I was not able to make that decision on. So I made, I, I mean, I chose my path um, partially, you know, uh, based on some level of interest where I, I said, I'm good at like physics and math and all these subjects. So let's do this. But also because I did not know what were the options out there. So hence, I graduated as, a, as an engineer. Um, I do think that the... The experience in uh, in the US was transformative. I have to I have to say, um, I was there under a scholarship from uh, from JPA uh, from the um, and and uh, and I was very very lucky that because of the community there, because of the uh, the opportunity to travel to speak to people to you know run a student organization over there. I think that's given me such a interesting experience about what's possible. In the world, and I think that's one of the values that I bring back, um, you know, from my studies is that there is so much out there in the world that's going on that we can simply replicate, right? The idea of lowering the voting age is not a unique idea, right? But it is somehow in the Malaysian context so progressive and so radical, right? When for me, I don't think it's it's radical at all, right? I think it's just common sense. So I do think that there's a lot of stuff that you can also look at it from that lens where you you know, go and experience things overseas, see how things are done, right? And if there are ideas, initiatives, or concepts or solutions that you can bring back, why not do that, right? So I think that was one big shift and big mentality change that I really uh, gained from that experience. Um, I do think that um, as an engineer, um, so just just for context, I actually worked as an engineer for three years, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I was not able to work directly in oil and gas, because unfortunately, um, when I graduated in 2016, there was a massive um, crash in oil prices. So which means that a lot of engineers were being laid off. A lot of workers in the oil and gas industry and the mining in- industry were being laid off. So uh, when I came back, I worked in manufacturing for about one year. And then I worked in two years in software. So, um, but all three, all three years were, uh, were relevant for engineering. So in terms of how does it inform the work that I curr- currently do, and, uh, and how do I use that sort of knowledge? I think, unfortunately, mostly it's not relevant. La. I have to be quite honest, right? right. And, um, and often I tell people this, and that's completely fine also, right? Mm-hmm. Because your determination when you're 18 years old, right, does not have to define your life forever, right? And you should never fall to that sunk cost fallacy that, okay, I've invested four years in my life in engineering and I will fight and die until I become this engineer forever, right? Because I've invested four years of my life. I don't believe that, right? Um, but I do think that there is some level of benefit in that it does help me to look at things from a more analytic perspective, to look at issues and problems. So one important perspective that an engineer has uh, that you always get trained onto is that to try to look at the, the, the problem and then you work backwards, Right? These are one of the key ideas that they often teach you when you are doing project management. So instead of just looking at, okay, what are step-by-step solutions or what are the things that you need to do to solve a problem right? in abstract, instead they always teach you to look and understand the problem and then you try to dissect it. So I think that mentality is very, very useful in so many things, right? Uh, whether it's in terms of advocacy, policy making, 
um, your own personal life. I think that's that anal- that that analytical framework uh, was is something that continues to be valuable to me, uh, even though the degree is uh, or the or the the piece of paper that I have is not as relevant anymore. Now, okay, so uh, around this time, yeah. it's the time when you, you know, obviously from what you're doing now, you have gone through a shift in thinking, in mindset, and, and uh, in focus of your work, right? Um, so in that sense, I just want to go into uh, these few questions that are related to that, that can help us really understand, you know, why this pivot happens, right, mm-hmm. from a corporate life, right, yeah. that could have a quite good prospect in terms of financial um, uh, standings and, and, you know, progress in terms of career, and then you decide to do something quite different. Yeah. So then I would like to uh, explore this part of your life by asking you about um, someone that has influenced you. I've got a quote here, really. Uh, it says that this person has uh, have influenced your career choice, right? And your sense of justice was partially shaped uh, by your aunt, yeah. Dr. Selvi Watani. Uh, who lifted the lid on the systemic abuse of welfare system for Orang Asli. Yeah. Um, so tell us more about her and sure. how does she shape your worldview? Sure. So um, th- this is my late aunt. So she passed away uh, a couple of years ago in uh, 2018. So she, uh, she was a doctor uh, working with the Ministry of Health. And, um, and I think she was, uh, I, th- I think in, in my family, like she, was, um, she was a really, really excellent student. Right, uh, really did well. Uh, also, she also get, got like a scholarship um, to pursue her studies uh, in, in medicine. And she was an extremely dedicated and passionate doctor. She was very, very uh, determined to help her patients. And I think that was that element of service above self, right, that she always uh, held dear. So when she was transferred, um, and, and this was this was one of her uh, career choices that she, she decided, you know what, she wants to try something new. So she was helping out with the flying doctor service. Um, a flying doctor service just means that you go to remote areas via helicopter and you deliver uh, medical good, medical help, uh, deliver goods like, um, uh, like milk powder and uh, rice and a few other things. And these are all paid for by, 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 by taxpayers or, or by, by government. So... The issue that she faced or she saw was that there was a huge amount of um, uh, of corruption that was happening, and also uh, and also a, uh, a a mismanagement of funds, right? Where essentially, from instead of giving one pack of rice or one pack of um, or one tin of milk milk powder to the Orang Asli community, um, they only would give one plastic bag, or they only give one small um, uh, one small bottle of worth of rice. Whereas the rest of the money was being channeled into personal, um, personal interests, personal, uh, you know, uh, so the so the directors were were taking a cut from it, or they were channeling it into um, into conversion or uh, or uh, or programs to um, to get the Orang Asli to to convert um, in terms of their religion, right? So these were things that were all ongoing, and she felt this was, this was extremely wrong, and it was illegal, right? So what she did was that she. Uh, you know, she uh, she uh, reported it uh, in the, in the media, right? She she informed and she made certain reports to key members within within MOH, um, and I think that was something that was amazing, and and I really look up to her for being so strong. But I think the challenge was that what was the blowback that that, that happened to her, 
So what happened as a result from that was that she um, she was transferred to very remote locations, right, as a form of cold storage, uh, being put into somewhere far away, far away from family, far away from any resources, just in care of a small clinic when, when she has a much more experience than that, right? Um, so these were all impacted her. She had promotions being held back. She had salary increases being held from her, which she only found out many years later after fighting for it. So these were all things that happened to her as a result of messing with you know, uh, key individuals. So I think that was something that I really respected, her strength, her courage, and her perseverance. So I do believe that having that courage and perseverance is something that's so important in fighting forward. Um, and I think that for me is, is one of the things that, that informs my own activism, right? And my own uh, pursuit of, of justice in some way, right? That you got to sometimes be able to identify the things that are wrong and then you have to push back against it, right? So I think that's something that I, I, I learned from. But also I think the, I think the, the part that's, that I also try to value, especially in terms of uh, when you ask about my career and, and that, that transition is that how do I push for this pursuit of truth and justice in a manner that is sustainable, in a manner that makes sense, right? Um, because while you do want to do good things, but you don't want to burn yourself as a candle and then you're only able to do good for a couple of years and then you're just done, right? And you know, you, you, are, you know, you are either broke, you are broken as an individual, right? Uh, you're mentally gone, right? These are all things that, real issues that, that happen to activists and advocates out there. So how do we be sustainable about this? So I think that's something that I always try to keep in mind, um, even while I'm doing Undi 18 and I'm doing my activism full-time. Right, uh, that I have to see this as a longer term thing, as a career, as something that I want to build towards, um, and there must be some level of balance over there. Right, that while we pursue social good, we must also be kind to ourselves. Right, we must be able to feed ourselves, you know, well, must be able to pay for our, our staff and our team, right? Because like for me right now, I'm not just paying for myself; I'm also paying for the salaries of my staff. So I do think that that process, that thought process of being accountable is something that's so important, but also most importantly is to be kind, right? Not just be kind to everyone else, but not to forget to be kind to yourself also. I think that is some, the balance that a lot of people forget to strike, where they are so dedicated to helping the world, but they forget to help themselves also, right? So yeah. Yeah, when, when you go into talking about you know, being in the work of, uh, in the space of social impact and, you know, we see so many, I think we have had this conversation as yeah. well uh, many times. Even among, you know, all the people we know who are in the sector, you know, we do see a lot of uh, activists, a lot of uh, people who work in NGOs doing work that has social impact that cannot, f that somehow could not find the balance between uh, financial stability mm -hmm. and work that is really meaningful. Yeah. It seems like a, 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 you know, a tension that exists forever, right? And it takes a different sort of mindset and thinking to yeah. be able to like balance these two. You, yeah. know, I've, you know, I've met so many, you know, like you say, have so many different activist friends, uh, people working in NGOs that have financial issues, yeah. uh, personal ones with their family that you know they cannot sustain, and these are people who are not just smart, but very kind, passionate, and you know sometimes you think about it and you know maybe it's 
a matter of skill, right? Mm-hmm. A skill that you have to kind of invest some time to take yeah. care of the financial part as well. Yeah. For longevity, as you say, you know, how do we do it in a sustainable way? How do we have longevity? With longevity, there are more things that can be done and better impact. So in that sense, it's really interesting you bring this up. So yeah. you know, what's, your, what's your definition? What's your idea of success mm-hmm. you know, doing this work? Yeah. I would say that my definition of success, I would say that there is, there's three, three elements that I always use to define and, um, and also to judge whether or not my work is continues, to be, continues to be relevant. Number one is impact, right? Am I creating the right amount of impact out there that I want? And if I feel I'm not making an impact, I'm just here to coast along, I might as well do something else, right? Uh, because that's what activism is about. It's about creating change in the world around you. I think number two is also learning, right? Am I continuously learning and improving, challenging myself um, and growing as a person, right? I think this is also an important element in any career that you're in, right? The moment you stop learning, you are stagnant, right? No matter how successful you are, you might be in a high position, but if you stop learning, you really wither as a human being. And I think the last part, of course, is sustainability, right? Am I able to take care of myself, help my family? Am I able to save towards my retirement, right? These are all things that also mattered for me. So for me, I think success is a, is a multi-pronged thing, um, especially in the work that I do. But I think that's, that's what I try to define um, my version of success. I know that the ch- like, uh, like for a lot of organizations and a lot of individuals who are in the space, um, their definition of success might be quite different. Right? Uh, for them, is you know what? They're going to just go gung-ho and try to create the maximum amount of impact and just go straight out. But I think the, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a dual challenge with that approach. One is you eventually burn out right? uh, and you, you, know, you burn yourself out by just putting yourself and hurtling yourself and, um, and, you know, and in, in the end, you run out of fuel. Number two is that there must be a realization that in most countries... Um, and in most places, impact takes time, right? Because you're not just fighting, you're not just trying to change, um, you know, and choose where to eat lunch. You're trying to change institutions. You're trying to change the country. You're trying to change society. And that takes, you know, that involves millions of people out there. That involves so many interested parties who might be against you. There's so much of friction that you have to overcome. There are mammoths of institutions that you have to fight. And that takes time, right? So if you're not willing to look at the long game, not only will you burn out, but you will not even achieve the impact that you're there to fight for in the first place. So I think it's so important that, uh, at least for me, this is the framework, that, that, that triple framework of, uh, of learning, of sustainability and impact that I try to adhere to. Um, but of course, other people might have other definitions. But I do strongly urge, I think, more people to think about you know, uh, that longer-term vision, not just that short-term fight only yeah and you know i think we we kind of need to send a message to uh, young people who are coming into the game right you're young i mean <laughs> you are the younger generation right and i and i i do i do feel like you have a very important message uh, to mm. make here which is that uh, you know a lot of people see the work of uh, social impact as some kind of sacrifice yeah. they need to make personal sacrifices in order to um you know, be able to make impact, right, yeah. and do this kind of work. 
uh, and some of those sacrifices involving uh, you know might involve uh, financial sacrifice you know yeah. sacrifice with time with family and all that right yeah. but I think you are a new generation who really look at this a bit differently mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know. What would you say to you know even younger people who want to come in and you know how do you balance this too? How do you look at it? I I think sacrifice is one way to look at it, um, and I do certainly agree that there is some level of pain you have to accept in activism, right? There is no such thing as easy um, because anything that's worth doing. You know, is is worth fighting for, is worth worth suffering for, right? Um, but at the same time, I prefer to look at look at it as investment, right? When you make certain sacrifice, what am I investing in, and how do I see the longer term strategy to make sure that my investment bears fruit later on, right? So if you think about it, even right now, right, when you invest into something, there is short term pain because you're taking out money from your pocket. And putting it somewhere else, and you and you can't buy, you can't go on a holiday with that with that money. You can't go and buy something something nice for yourself. So you're essentially saying that I'm going to put my money elsewhere and not think about it. And that money is gone, right, for my future. So it's a similar mindset to you know to uh, to this situation where you got to put in the work, right, make certain sacrifices, right. But you really have to ask yourself, right, how do I get there in the end? If you think that okay, I can achieve this in three months. And therefore, I'm willing to make that financial sacrifice. Then good for you. Do that, right? You know, maybe you know, uh, sacrifice everything for like one two months, and then you get there, right? But most of the time, you will need five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, maybe even a lifetime before you achieve your target. How do you play the game and win in the end? Okay, great. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I agree completely with yeah. uh, uh, this view, and I feel like you know, if we play the long game, we can even see more impact. Yeah. Now, uh, I think here I would uh, ask some questions which might seem uh, this one question I want to ask, right? But which might seem like uh, a, a, a very hard left turn, but I mm. feel like it's very related, yeah. and it might inform us uh, again about this period of uh, you. Uh, making this shift, uh, but it goes into the mindset that you have, right? So, yeah. we when we sit down, we we talk a lot about uh, many things, and mm. one of those topics are uh, very interesting to me as well, yeah. uh, which is philosophy. Yeah, uh, I kind of faintly remember this. Now you have to correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, right. I kind of faintly remember this. We, you know, I I don't remember which conversation, but you 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 mentioned this in passing and say because you read a lot yeah. in, of philosophy. Uh, and you say, okay, again, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know whether I'm misquoting you here. You can correct yeah, me. Sure. You said something like, okay, I've read enough of uh, philosophy, right? I've read enough. Yeah. Uh, so I want to understand what this means. What do you mean by I've read enough about philosophy? Uh, there is a context to it. Yeah. If you can explain, there is context to it. So I want to firstly want to know like how influential is this, uh, you know, uh, study of philosophy? Yeah. Uh, is to your mindset, yeah. you, you know how you think and what you do, and again this this specific comment lah. Okay, sure. read enough of the philosophy. Sure, tell me. Um, okay, first and foremost, I am a big fan of philosophy. I'm a big fan of reading. Uh, I'm a big fan of learning how other people think, 
right? Um, and there are so many great thinkers out there that you can learn from and shortcut your way into uh, knowledge and shortcut your life experience, right? And your life journey yeah, in a way. Um, and I think it's been hugely influential in terms of why I do the work that I do, how I understand the world around me, right? So I think philosophy matters, right? Uh, it's an incredibly important thing. And I do urge more people out there to read, to listen to podcasts, to, uh, you know, to get educated about all this, right? Um, because I think even like in terms of understanding political structures, there's philosophy behind it. In terms of understanding your own life, why do you live your life, right? Why do you not just drop dead, right? Or why do you not just, you know, uh, maybe pursue a religious path, right? Why do you make these, these decisions? And, um, and what are you fighting for, right? So I think these are all big questions that philosophy answers. So I think I was very privileged and very lucky in my life that I've had exposure to this. You know, uh, whether me actively pursuing it because of my years of debating, um, also sometimes class assignments and you got to just read all these philosophy homeworks and all, all, all that stuff, right? But I do think that at a certain point, after reading all this, right? And I want to emphasize, after reading all this, you got to accept that sometimes it's enough thinking and it's enough pondering and it's time to act. It's time to put those ideas into reality, right? I think that's one of the challenges that a lot of people have is that one, of course, there are, there are groups that just don't know about, about these ideas at all and, uh, and they just act, right? And they don't create big impacts usually, right? But there are also another group where they just keep talking about these ideas, talking and talking and talking and debating to no end and seeing who is the purest about these ideas and they don't act either, right? They don't engage in the real world and realize, okay, this is the difference between idealism and reality. How do we bridge that gap? So I think that at some point, you got to just, you know, fold your sleeves up and just get the work done, right? Informed by philosophy, informed by idealism, but you got to work uh, work on it, right? Um, and I think maybe you can, I can take, I can give you an analysis from a, from a, like from a political situation, right? Uh, because there are a lot of groups that are, you know, that debate in terms of what's the best way forward. You know, a lot of philosophical discussion about, okay, this is the best way to solve poverty. This is the way, best way to, um, you know, to, to fix problems. This is the best way to, to solve social issues. And they just debate and debate and debate. And they argue with each other, right? I'm the better one. I have the better ideas. And none of them are actually doing the work on the ground. None of them are actually creating real change aside from arguing with each other, right? So then the question is that, are we going to be so obsessed about proving that we're the smartest or do we want to create the most impact in the world? Are we the, want to be the most obsessed about saying that we are the most just, the kindest or the best person, say that we are, or do we want to create the most amount of justice, kindness and fairness in the world? And there is a real dichotomy that you have to choose. Great one. Yeah. Right. So uh, another area I, I uh, one wanted to go into uh, is also mentioned mm -hmm. uh, in, 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 you know, the, the, the question just now. Uh, you talk about debating. Yeah. So I guess this is also one part of your life that uh, uh, kind of influential to what you do now. Because for me, you are a great communicator, mm -hmm. right? You are able to put um, you know, put across ideas in a very, very um, 
clear kind of communication. Mm. Uh, is that because of your training in 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 terms of debate? Uh, can you tell us about that? Um, for sure, I I think that um, debating played a huge role in my life. Um, I started debating when I was 16 years old, right? Uh, my first time debating. I was a public speaker before, uh, so storyteller, all this kind of stuff. But really, I think the the part where you are you are forced to confront your own limitations of your ideas when you are debating, because often with other speech formats, public speaking and all that, you're just preparing and you're just speaking in a silo. You speak well, you know, you speak attractively, right? Um, you look good, you probably will win. Right, you have a bit of an accent, you'll win. Right, um, but with debating, no, it's basically: Do you have a good idea or not? How much is your idea getting shot down or not? Right, how can I bring a unique contribution? So that forces you to learn, to consider, to read, to challenge your own perspectives. Because if you have a perspective, you always, as part of debate training, is that you have to always consider that other person is going to rip you up mm. if you don't know how to defend your own ideas. So before they rip you up. You gotta rip your own self up and defend your own ideas, right? So it's like a preemptive kind of like thought process. So for me, I think that entire um, learning and that that uh, that experience has been so valuable over the years uh, in learning, of course, how to structure my thoughts, structure how I speak, but also in terms of my exposure to knowledge. Um, and I think I've become a significantly different person, you know, over the years as a result of um, uh, of my debate training and of course the exposure that I've had. Through this community, so yeah, I think uh, I mean I'm not I'm not the debater anymore, right? Uh, but I think that if uh, anyone has the opportunity to debate, to learn how to do it, and even the philosophy and the and also the uh, the framework of debating, right? I think it's something that's very valuable. So you would you would recommend it to all you know who who have a chance to do it in school? Absolutely. You know, you have kids, you would like. Absolutely, them <laughs> I think it's I think it's one of the best activities. Wow! Um, and I think that every single person should know how to debate, right? And uh, just to be clear, I don't mean debate just to be annoying, right? And be like, okay, uh, when you say water is wet, and I'll be like, actually no, <laughs> right? No, I don't mean that. But can you actually accept different ideas, right? Can you take a perspective that you don't agree with, right? That I fundamentally disagree with and defend that idea, right? So I, I think there was a there was a quote uh, a, a mark of a a mark of an intelligent mind is if you're able to hold opposing thoughts uh, in your mind. I, I, I'm paraphrasing, right? But that's essentially it, right? So if you can disagree with something and defend it and see another person's perspective, isn't that what empathy is about? Isn't that what imagination is about? And that's something that's so powerful, right? So this is an activity that literally forces you. To do that as a training, yeah. Now uh, that gives us a chance to really uh, go into talking about uh, you know what you're well known for. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna go into this section sure. where we talk about the work that you do, uh, a movement that you started with uh, Kira, yeah, called Undi Eighteen, yeah. Right, so uh, I think you're most well known for that, and a lot of the work that you have now, you know, like it's informed by that uh, yeah. experience. So tell us how and why. Yeah. Did you start MD18 with Kira? How did it happen? Yeah. Why? I think the why is mainly because I was annoyed 
right? Uh, I was annoyed that uh, I wasn't able to vote, right? Uh, I think that was that was the, the core idea. Uh, How but, old were you then? Um, so when we started, it, I was 23 years old, hmm. right? Um, I was. It was in 2016, and uh, it was the U.S. presidential election. So I lived with three American guys, and um, my experience was this: that these were normal engineer geology guys, right? They didn't really care about politics, except during this election period, all of a sudden they were like, you know, they were trying to fi- figure things out. They were trying to get educated. They were trying to compare Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, look at their policy platforms and all that stuff. And I thought that was so interesting, right? And, you know, in, in any country, right, there's always this small group of people who care about pushing change forward, but it's only like elections and democracy that gets everyone to be engaged, right, in the process of finding a, a next future uh, vision for the country, right? So I thought that was something that was so powerful. Um, and of course, I want to bring that, back, bring that back. That was one element. The second part was also the fact that they were one year younger than me. They were 22 years old. And that was their second time voting. So I hadn't had the chance to vote even once because the, the last general election, I was 20 years old, right? Just one year off the voting age. And I hadn't had the chance to vote when I was 23 years old. Right. Um, so the first time that I would eventually be able to to vote was when I was 25 years old. Right. So as you can see, that this was something that made me quite unhappy, and I thought we had to fix this. So I was quite lucky that um, I, like myself and Kira, we were both part of um, student organizations, Malaysian student organizations, and we were part of the leadership. So I was the president of my organization. She was the president of hers. And when we moved to another organization, uh, we became part of the main committee. Both of those were vice presidents. Uh, and we decided, you know what? Let's push this forward. Let's engage with all the Malaysian um, student organizations around the world whether you're in Australia, in the UK, in Korea, wherever you are, if you're a Malaysian student organization, come and support us because you've seen in your country how the voting age is lowered, right? And that hasn't had a, a huge impact, right? Or that hasn't had a huge negative consequences to, uh, consequence to the country. Everything is as normal, right? So how about we bring that home back to Malaysia? So that was the idea. Sorry, so, what yeah. is this student organization called? And, and um, you know, was it all in the US? So the, the organization that I was in charge of was called the East Coast Presidential Council, right? Um, and Kira was called the um, uh, COMS. Uh, so it was the Midwest Council, right? Um, but then we went uh, and joined another organization called the Malaysian Students Global Alliance, which was an international Malaysian students organization. Uh, with links to like organizations like UKEC in UK, MASCA in Australia, uh, you know, Jordanian students, basically all over the world, right? Um, so the idea is that we use these networks and leverage on it to launch uh, Undi 18 officially um, with a memorandum and a petition to uh, Dr. Sri Najib Tun Razak, who was the Prime Minister at that time. Um, and yeah, so that, that started the journey, right? Of course, um, it was not an easy journey, right? Wherever we went to, we had you know, just doors shut and and, and, uh, and government at, at that time was like, nope, we don't agree with this. We don't really support this. Um, and so we were lucky that we worked together with opposition to bring and, and bring the lowering of the voting age into the opposition agenda so that when the opposition somehow, you know, um, became government, we worked together with opposition. Oh, sorry, we worked together with the government at the time, which was Pakatan Harapan, to push this bill into law. Okay, I'm interested in that process. Yeah. That process of, you know, so, you know, you mentioned it, oh, so we started working with the opposition, right? Yeah. But 
Who did you mean? How did you convince them? Okay. Um. I think for, for how we tried to meet, because for us we did not have any political context, right? Uh. I'm. I mean, I did not come from a from a political family. None of us. None of us did. So I think what we did was that we. Push this first and foremost as a digital campaign, right? Um, so we started out as hashtag undi 18, right? Uh, as a means to brand it. So instead of just lowering the voting age from 21 to 18 years old, we became undi 18. It was just a short, short version, and everyone knew it's like undi 18, undi 18, undi 18. So that's why you see even now it's taken up a life of its own. Undi 18 is not just mm. referring to the legislative bill. It is now a short form for all young people, mm. right? Uh, yeah. You know, and I think that's the power of branding. And that's the power of digital advocacy, right? So that's one element. So once we started that, we basically went and tried our best. Whenever there was a engagement session by any politician, we would just go and 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 be there. Whether it's a forum, whether it's a workshop, whether it's a discussion session, whether it's a speech, we'll go and try to meet this politician and say that, "Hi, we are from Undi 18. We are pushing for this. Can we talk to you? Can we get your name card? Can we send you an email?" So I think we, that was what we tried to do. We just tried to knock on as many doors as possible, try to talk to as many people as possible, uh, just to see if they would support us or not. If they support us, great. Um, so I think as a result from that advocacy, uh, we did manage to meet a number of um, not just government um, leaders, right, government uh, youth leaders, but also opposition youth leaders. So uh, which is why we first managed to get Undi 18 or the lowering of the voting age into the Pakatan Harapan Youth Manifesto. Right. Uh, so before it was put into the main Pakatan Harapan Manifesto. So I think that was a strategy, right? right? Just meet as many people as possible in forums and these sort of sessions. Uh, say hi, right? Don't be shy and uh, and try to convince them over there. Yeah. So during this process, right? It's okay. Of course, it's it's a lot of work, and and you meet so many people that you do not know uh, yeah. where you go. Now, my 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 curiosity is. Uh, do you remember the turning point, right? What like you know is is it like a process where you feel like it just keep building up mm-hmm. and eventually it reaches a a tipping point where okay people start to uh, kind of feel a, a a kind of motivation or a pressure right to mm-hmm. jump onto the bandwagon. How did it happen? Do you remember a turning point? Is there someone or one uh, you know one conversation, one event where you feel like hey this is really working? Mm-hmm. I have to be quite honest. Um, I think up till the general elections, I think it felt very, very difficult and very, very hopeless. I have to be quite, quite frank. Uh, just because it felt that we were just hitting our head against the wall. Uh, we got decent media momentum in our programs and forums. Uh, we managed to, uh, you know, get supporters, and I think that that was very helpful, right? So when we did engagements and forums of our own. Um, that was when we built our volunteer list, and we built our own team. And some of these people in our team were members of political parties, right? Um, and that helped us open up more doors, right? So I think that was an element that was good. But to be quite frank, I think it's only after the elections where there was a real um, opportunity, right? Um, so of course, with uh, YB Said Sadik, he was willing to champion this issue because he was supportive. He was one of the people that we engaged with before the elections, right? Uh, before he was uh, uh, a member of parliament, before he was a minister. So when he got into uh, power and he he became minister, he was like, "Let's make this happen." So I think it was because of that that um, that 
the process could even happen and it could even be brought to cabinet, it could even be brought to parliament. I do think that the if you talk about a turning point, I do think that after the, the change in government, I do believe that there was there could there was a palpable shift in public sentiment towards it because people were just talking about it, right? They were debating about it. People were, some of them were angry. Some of them were like, no, we can't do this. This is a ridiculous idea. But there's also a bunch of other people who were like, no, this is very reasonable, right? And that was where we were there to provide, you know, all the information and try to engage with people, try to change them over. And I do think that there were many people um, who joined our forums and attended our events who were like, you know what? I disagreed with Undi 18 before, but after listening to you, I think this makes sense, right? Um, and this was a similar thing where when we first started actually um, in uh, in 2017, when we first officially launched it, I wrote a letter to every single leader of multiple youth organizations. Um, and there's, there's, uh, there's, there's a friend of mine, uh, his name is Shazwan, right? He was the leader of the Perdana Fellows Alumni Association. And he said that when he heard of this idea, he thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was a dumb idea. Um, you know, just straight up, I was, he was just, just, just going to be like, nope, I'm going to reject this. But after he read my letter, I wrote out and I explained in detail why he should support this, the logic of it, the rationale. He said he changed his mind, right? So I think that that's something that, and because he changed his mind, he convinced his organization to vote. That means they had an internal vote and they voted in favor of supporting and endorsing Undi 18. So yeah, I think that was the process. Yeah. Can, can you give us, give us an idea like how many months of work, like how long does it take to reach that point where, you know, oh, uh, serious people are talking about this seriously? Okay. I would say that for the first two years, I would say, right? Um, so we started off in late 20, uh, 2016, officially launched in early 2017. Um, I think it was only up till... Um, it was only up to the change in government in uh, in 2018, and I would say it's only up is only really in the middle to late of 2018 that big and serious like the serious people were discussing it, you know, as as a, as a big deal, right? As something that could possibly happen, right? Um, so it was only once it hit um, the, the like once cabinet uh, agreed that okay, this thing is going to be tabled in parliament next year. Right or it's going to be table in Parliament. I think that was when people were like, "Oh wow, this thing might happen," and it's time to really engage in a conversation about this. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there was that element where it's it took legislative action or you know like a cabinet level discussion for people to really start talking about this issue. Um, yeah. So I, to, to be quite quite frank, but the real the real hardcore momentum and a lot of work happened towards the end of 2018 once that. That, that movement started or once that ball started rolling legislatively and in 2019 I think that was the, the huge amount of work that needed to be done over there yeah yeah, I, I think it does paint a picture of uh, how much work and investment right if yeah. you think about impact you know as we have talked about even within this interview you know think about impact work it doesn't happen overnight yep. and sometimes when people look at a movement that is successful especially when you look back and say oh undi 18 yeah we all know about it you yeah. know the law was passed there is a sense that oh uh yeah these guys are so great you know when yeah. they introduce this the idea is the time has come yeah. and you know just they they did not see all the hard work that was done right. all the doubt all the difficulties in the beginning and right. i do remember this story that I, I i hope you can share uh that 
you know, you mentioned uh, about, you know, one of the f- very first events that you guys organized and how mm. many people <laughs> attending yes. that event. Can you tell sure. us a bit about that? So we organized our first event um, in early 2017, right? Um, and I, I, I still vividly recall, right? Um, uh, I, I just finished my finished work, right? Uh, so I, I was working in Bangi at that time. Um, sorry, I was working in Semenyi, right, at the time. Drove up about one and a half hours to the event uh, event place, which is all the way in Subang. Um, and when, when we got there, you know, we barely had anyone. Like, uh, we had um, the the moderator, uh, which is Kira. Myself as one of the speakers. Uh, we had uh, Sinu and Anik as the, the, the speakers. So, there were just the four of us. And the audience was basically... Anik's family members, right? <laughs> uh, so, th- so there were about uh, f- four, four of them who were there, right? Uh, a couple of people who, who opened up the space, right? So I think the grand total of people who were there, right, uh, in the audience was basically four or five people. <laughs> That's all. That was a grand total of the audience that we had at the time. Um, so I, I, I thought, I mean, looking back, you know, looking at the photos, looking at the memories, right? Um, you know, like uh, like Sinu who who was who became a lawyer for the court case later on, told us that he thought that this thing would go nowhere, right? Because of how pitiful it was, how sad it was, right? Uh, and even on Facebook, barely any, anyone was watching watching this uh, uh, watching this 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 forum. So I think that was the experience. So, but for me, I think that the important thing I I, I often think to myself is that to not not to immediately judge yourself. At that point, at that moment in time, is always to uh, to always think. Okay, what is that? You know, what do I want to achieve in the end? How do I keep building this momentum slowly and steadily? Uh, just keep pushing, keep pushing. If there is something that is a roadblock, how do I pivot? How do I pivot? How do I make sure? You know, how do I get back onto the right track? Right. So I think that was the part that was uh, uh, that we had to go through. But to be quite frank, it would have been easily to be demotivated. Right, um, I think our first initial few events, we barely had viewers, we barely had supporters. Um, it was really something that people were like, oh, "Okay, these people are doing something." Right, I don't know really what they're doing, but they're doing something. Right, um, and only much later, people, you know, uh, when when it was a success, and we have lots and lots of audience, you know, uh, lots of people join our programs, and uh, and I think is I'm just very glad that I never gave up at the start when there was no one. Watching us, no one, no one caring about this advocacy. Yeah. Okay. With this, I I really want to uh, ask you a couple of questions about uh, your skills, your yeah. skill set. Right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, from you know, I I I went and check out your website. You know, I, I know a lot of the the different initiatives that you have started, and yeah. it just it just it still surprised me. You know how much. Yeah. Uh, of work you're doing, how mm. many different things you are you're trying to uh, push for, yeah. and you know, just I'm just gonna mention a couple of them. There is the the one 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 initiative, yeah. My Hutan, Senate eighteen, Undi Saksama, Undi yeah. Sabah, Undi Sarawak, and yeah. you know all these other programs you have run before, like Parliament Digital, Undi Ketiga. Yeah. So you seem to have an ability. And a very robust skill set to build movement. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is so uh, interesting, mm-hmm. right? Like you know the work that you know I've been trying to do in you know uh, fostering collaborations among NGOs, uh, building coalitions, right? Um, 
it's somehow very related to that but you seem to have figured out something mm-hmm. and I would love for you to share about this right it's like this ability to build movements to yeah. build uh, collaborations get people to join and move a, a, an issue forward yeah um how how do you do it first thing is i want to i really want to know like how do you pick an issue mm-hmm. right how do you decide like okay this is something that is ripe to be worked on yeah right tell us about that first okay i think when you choose an issue in a way it is also sort of like choosing a business in a way also right uh, that you want to start you want to be able to be the right person to it right do you have credibility uh do you have the right skill set uh, do you have the right experience to talk about those issues? So for me, immediately, you know, when it comes to youth issues, as a young person, I have credibility to talk about it, right? Um, when it comes to issues of representation um, and fighting for for equal democratic rights, you know, that, that's something that I have credibility to do. So I think this is one thing that we that we look into. So there's also one that is quite out of the norm, which is about my hutan, right? Uh, but Again, it's tied back to us being as uh, being young people, right? We care about the future. We care about um, you know the climate because the climate inevitably affects our ability to survive. You know this this next fifty years, right? So I do think that that is the the, the perspective that I come from in terms of choosing issues. So I I try not to do things that are too out of the box, right? That are too distant from where I do, right? Um, so for example, of course, I do care about issues like minimum wage. Uh, things like uh, better economics, gig economy, right? These are issues that I also care about, uh, and I and of course I have a lot of strong opinions about all these issues, right? But do I deliberately go and overextend myself and be like, let me speak up on all these issues? No, I, I think it's very important to be strategic in terms of what you fight for. So I think that's that's really the 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 thought process that I have when it comes to starting uh, these these key initiatives uh, and key fights. But also I think that. Um, there's there's a little bit of balance over here, right? If you notice, uh, notice some of the choices that we that we've made in terms of advocacy. Some of it are things that I believe are low hanging fruit that should you know absolutely should just be done. Like for example, Senate 18. Senate 18, I think, is the most simple thing that I think just could be done like tomorrow. And you know, like, and I just don't understand why it should be why it's not done yet, right? So I think that's one thing that um, that. Uh, that we choose where where there are certain things that are just so clear cut that we want to raise awareness on to make sure that the public is behind this so we can advocate for it but on the other hand uh, there are also issues that are very difficult for example the one woman initiative about is about women's representation in politics and that requires you to overcome cultural bias religious bias uh, party politics party structure right uh, that's one element uh, also undi saksama is about you know, like uh, minority rights, balance between urban rural voters, right? How do we then divide um, constituencies? All these, you know, are, you know, are big issues that we still have to fight it, right? So for me is that, another thing is to also for me to consider is that how do I play my role to communicate on these issues, right? So for example, on the issue of gerrymandering and malapportionment, very, very complicated terms, you know, from a political, technical standpoint, right? I mean, I don't really want to go into details of what is gerrymandering, what is first past the post. I don't really want to go, go into that, right? But these are technical terms in terms of our, uh, in terms of our electoral systems. But how do, I, how do I want to reframe it? I reframe it as undi saksama. On a very simple manner, it is just equal vote. So I'm asking, uh, asking you, is our vote equal? Is your vote equal to mine? 
right? Is my vote equal to someone who is in Sarawak or someone who is in Perak, right? How do we then make sure that our votes are equalized? So when we start from a simple, understandable standpoint, I, that makes our communications and our advocacy easier. So I think that's something that I want to try to contribute towards the discourse of improving Malaysia. For those people who uh, look at you know some all the initiative you are you have started right and uh, maybe they 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 are not familiar with some of them. Uh, is there? Uh, I I don't think we will have time to go through every single yeah, one. Yeah. But is there a couple or one or two that you want to really highlight? You know, have some time talk about it. And what is it actually? Sure. What are you trying to bring? And uh, what needs to be done? Sure. I think the one that I want to highlight because I mentioned a few of the causes that we are pushing for already, right? But I do want to highlight some of our state-based. Uh, initiative Undi Sabah Undi Sarawak uh, we also have Undi Johor that we did recently uh, previously this was centered around state, state elections right and that was why we ran these campaigns but what we are trying to do right now is that we are trying to uh, get registered under the Registrar of Youth as Undi Negaraku right and after we have Undi Negaraku we want to set up state chapters Undi Kelantan Undi Perlis Undi you know, Trungano Undi Negeri Sembilan every single state should have a state chapter for Undi 18 where we are able to provide a platform, engage young people uh, and give them an opportunity to run programs of their own in terms of democracy, vote education. And I think this is something that's so important because if you look at the civil society space in Malaysia, if you are a progressive civil society, very few of us actually have the numbers, Right? When it comes to mobilization, mobilization is not just saying people supporting you online. It's about can you bring forward people for your events. If let's say I do a memorandum handover, if I do a protest, I can bring the numbers, right? I think one of the big issues is that for a lot of progressive organizations, we most of us really don't have the numbers, right? When, when you say don't have the numbers, do you mean uh, enough people to support a particular Yes, issue? correct. Okay. So we have loose networks or people who generally agree with us, but... When it comes to political mobilization, there's a, there's, there's a reality, right? People get angry on issues off and on, mm. right? And then they move on. You cannot credibly and reasonably say that these are people um, who, will, who are your constituents or these are people who, are, who have your back, which is why it's so important for you to have, uh, when, for you to organize, right? You know, in, uh, in, in, in terms of um, building social movement, the term organizing is so important. So I think that's something that we are trying to do to organize on a state by state and on a national level so that going forward, we have a greater voice and we are able to impact change not only on a national level, but also on a local and uh, also you know, on a district level, right? Through these mechanisms, right? So I do think that having those numbers of people behind you as your volunteers, as your participants and as your um, organization members will be something that's very powerful for progressive movements going forward. Now with this, uh, maybe as an example um, of what you're trying to uh, build, uh, I, I remember that you have shared before, uh, yeah. in terms of building movements, advocacy work, right? You have presented uh, this model yeah. of how you do advocacy before. There yeah. are certain steps. Yeah. Uh, and I find that very, very interesting. Uh -huh. I think that for you to be able to do advocacy well, 
um, there is I would say there is a there's a key element that you have to that you have to do right um, number one is you have to have a specific cause right more often than not people don't know what they're fighting for they fight for women they fight for youth they fight for environment they fight for Malaysia they fight for Slango what does it mean right no one really understands tell me specifically what you want to change and can you tell me how that change will happen right that's also another issue if I want to end logging what do you have to do to end logging is, does that power belong to federal government or does it belong to state government right um, what are the laws you have to change in your state government constitu- uh, uh, like the undang undang to bon agree to change that right these are all questions that you should be able to answer so one is be specific number two is that Utilize, I think one for me, I think I'm a big believer in digital advocacy. So when you talk about digital advocacy, you must be able to be um, attractive and you must have branding, right? You must see yourself as a business in a way, right? Similar to how businesses have branding, they have their cool logo, all that stuff. That also matters so that people can immediately be like, be like okay, I know what these guys are talking about, right? That's a second element that matters. The third thing that matters is that you must build a community of people who support in you and believe in you, right? Um, so I think that part is uh, that part matters. But a lot of organizations do the first three parts relatively well. The part that most organizations fail, especially you know newer organizations, that they fail the next step, which is to engage stakeholders, right? Often, you know, when when, when it comes to theory of change, right? We often talk about how do we achieve this change that we want, and most people are stuck on the awareness stage. You know, they, they, they talk about why this problem is bad, why we have to do this, why we have to fix this, right? But you're all on the awareness stage. How do you get to the stage of awareness to change, to um, bring this as a bill in parliament, as a bill in the Dewan Undangan Agree, right? How do we move there? You have to engage stakeholders, right? You have to be able to uh, mobilize, right? So I give you an example of how we did it with uh, Akta 342 last year. Right, where I disagreed with the, uh, with the amendments to the bill because I thought it was too far-reaching. It was too excessive. So what we did was that we built awareness, but immediately we spoke to multiple stakeholders across the political aisle, say that you have to stop this bill from going to be, be voted on. Can, can you tell us a bit more, like uh, define what ACTA 362 sure. is? Yeah. Um, so ACTA 342 is basically the, the Dangerous Diseases Act. Uh, sorry, uh, I, I forgot what's, what's the full term, right? but, but it's basically the act that defines what are the powers of government in terms of controlling for certain uh, public health issues. So, for example, dengue, um, SARS, H1N1, and of course, for COVID-19, right? So, what the government wanted to do was that they wanted to massively increase the power of government um, and especially the Ministry of Health to not only have uh, in terms of what is the fines that were, that were able to be given out. So, for example, they wanted to be able to, um, uh, if let's say you were a company, they would wanted to be able to jail you up to seven years and charge you a fine up to two million ringgit if you are found guilty of any, any sort of um, uh, mistake uh, with, with the Acta 342. If you're an individual, you don't wear your mask, for example, or you wear your mask wrongly or whichever it is that they decide, they want to be able to uh, put you in jail for two years and charge you up to 100,000 ringgit, right? Uh, and it's not just your health enforcers. The, they also wanted to give power to the Director General of Health to give, be able to give out these powers to everyone, whether it is the police, whether it is your parking, your parking regulators, everyone. 
He could just give out power that you are now authorized to give out fines and jail term for um, these sort of um, mistakes against the health code, right? So that was a bit excessive. Uh, that was way too excessive, right? So we pushed back against it. But I think that was a model of how you can use it, right? So we built the awareness and we highlighted how this thing was bad. And then we got the public riled up. But we didn't just stop there. We went out and spoke to multiple people, including we even reached out to uh, YB Kari Jamaluddin's office and said that let's let's reach out and we disagree with this bill, right? We spoke to um, you know from MPs from not just the opposition but also with the government side. So we spoke to everyone and we even went down to Parliament to de- to deliver a memorandum, right? So we did all these things and essentially the bill was defeated and it was not brought back anymore because of how strongly and effectively we pushed back against it. So I do think that advocacy is not something that is very complex to be able to be done, but it does require hard work, creativity, um, and also some, you know, some intelligence, right? To be able to get that change that you, that you want. And of course, luck, right? Luck also matters greatly, right? So I think that these are the, these are the elements that often people overlook. They're often focused on the awareness part, but not on the change-making part. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, is it because people don't really have the skills to do that last part, or is it because they, they imagine it to be something that's a bit more difficult than it really is? You know, do you have an idea why, why is it a challenge for most people? I think it's just because it's difficult, mm. right? It's, it, it takes it takes a lot of organizing hours. It takes a lot of effort. Um, it takes a lot of patience. And if you notice, a lot of people are very happy to be angry online nowadays, right? Um, anger is so easy, right? But anger is temporary. How many people do you know that are constantly angry about an issue week after week, month after month, year after year? No, not many, right? And if there is someone who is constantly angry about something, most probably this person is not a very pleasant person to work with, right? <laughs> or needs therapy. Right, right, probably, right? Because they are constantly angry, right? To be passionate, I want to be very clear, passion and anger is different, right? But anger is something that we're so easy to mobilize. But I think that's where people are, most, uh, are mostly at. They, are, they, are, they, just want to, they just want to be angry and speak about these issues, um, but they don't want to go more. That's one layer. Number two is that a lot of digital platforms have enabled people to get a lot of, one is credibility, one is attention, also in terms of a lot of validation, just by starting pages, right? Uh, a lot of them, so they, they just start Twitter pages, Instagram pages, um, they have TikTok channels, and they just feel, oh wow, I'm so popular, and I'm speaking out about some good things, and therefore I'm a good person, right? So I think this goes back to what I said earlier, right? There's a big difference between feeling like you're a good person versus actually making the world a better place, right? Um, and I think the process of making the world a better place is not very easy, right? Because it often means that you have to meet MPs and also politicians that you don't like, right? Because they might be in government, they might be in a party you don't like, you know, uh, um, that's one thing. Number two is that you also have to moderate your language, right? You can't just be always angry. You must also be able to be diplomatic, must see things from the other side's perspective, that's another thing. Number three also, you have to be able to build coalitions, right? And coalitions is about patience, right? Because 
you got so many stakeholders, different attention spans, different levels of interest, different levels of priorities and different levels of uh, philosophy, right? How do you come together, right? And if all you want to do is be able to show that you are the purest, you'll never be able to work with a coalition or in a movement, right? You'll never be able to organize. So really the work of solving problems is very difficult. Raising awareness on problems is very easy. So I think that's, that's, that's the disconnect over here, right? Uh, and a lot of people think that just because they're raising awareness, they are solving the problem. That's not the case, right? Often people just get angry and they just move on. That seems to be a, such a great way to describe the difference between, um, you know, people who think they are activists, but they are basically keyboard warriors, right? Uh, a, a lot of emotions, a lot of uh, voicing out of discontents, but the, there's a lot of opposition, right, to the yeah. pe- to the people you're supposed to convince. Correct. Whereas how you describe your work is mainly building collisions, building relationship, building trust yeah. with even people uh, who uh, oppose whatever you're proposing, right? Yeah. Uh, to start with. And eventually to convert them, or yeah. at least make them like neutralize them or something, Correct. so that so that eventually this get adopted yeah. by the most important uh, people. Uh, that's really things. Uh, I've just got a maybe a couple of uh, questions uh, before we end this. Yeah. All right. Um, so one of it is because you read a lot. Yeah. Uh, would like like to ask you about um, maybe books that can easily come to your mind that you would recommend people to read mm. or it can be something like you know if I ask you a favorite book maybe you have to think about it for a while but it could be something like a recent book mm. right or anything that you can think of mm-hmm. I think I have to Google the, Google the name of the book I, it's, ah, by, okay, it's, by, okay. uh, it's by the Nobel Prize winner um Oh my god! Uh, while while we are googling, okay, well, what is it about? Okay, it's basically about creating an economy um, of um, of solutions, hmm. right? So by rethinking, essentially, is is also a little bit about our conversation today, right? Hmm. How do we develop sustainable, um, longer thinking um, organizations and enterprises that are not centered around profit alone? that will be able to solve multiple problems. For example, um, like uh, unemployment, um, be able to look at how we can recharacterize capital, right, and capitalism, right? Um, so uh, it's, by, it's by Muhammad Yunus, the, oh, uh, okay. the, uh, yeah. the, the Nobel Prize winner. Uh, we'll, we'll try and look for it, but if, even if we don't find it, what I'll do is, uh, you know, we'll go and research and put it in the show notes for okay. this it's, podcast. It's a world of three zeros. A world Muhammad. of three zeros. Correct. Okay. By yeah. Muhammad Yunus. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So essentially, the, the, the idea is that uh, they want to be able to look at uh, zero unemployment, uh, zero net carbon emissions, and zero poverty. Mm. Yeah. So the world of three zeros. So I do think that that's something that's very interesting. Um, I may or may not agree with everything that, that's being said, but I do, th- I do really enjoy, uh, you know, like following the progress uh, of... Uh, of the uh, of uh, Muhammad Yunus, uh, not only because he's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, but because I think he has very very real and interesting takes on how to solve global problems, right? Um, and 
it's often not only enough for us to just look at solutions and be like, okay, that's a good idea or not. But more importantly, how can we go back and think about how did he derive those solutions? What was the thought process that he got that he wanted to uh, wanted to achieve and uh, for him to get to where he got to? I thought that thing is more important. And um, and for me, like while I was looking at his book, and I, I think that having that, process, that, that thought process is so valuable in terms of looking at our current problems and essentially trying to see, okay, what are established structures that we can use to fix those problems? There are a lot of people who go for really radical solutions that they say that, you know what, to abolish, uh, to what do you call it, to uh, solve poverty, you have to completely restructure everything. We have to completely transform everything. We have to break down. We have to do a revolution. And it's just talk, right? Let's be quite honest, right? When you talk about a revolution, most of the time, these people who talk about revolutions will never take up arms, <laughs> will never make things happen. But here is a guy who said, let me be revolutionary in a way that is effective, right? So it's an effective revolution because he's showing that his ideas can actually, can actually happen. Like when he lo- talked about microfinancing decades ago, now microfinancing is a thing all over the world. Right? So I do think that that's just something that's so interesting that within the current framework of where we exist, how do we then solve problems in a way that's sustainable, that's empowering for our beneficiaries? So yeah, so you should read, read that book, I think. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, the other question is, uh, do you have any advice for people who are, you know, young people, because you work with youth a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, young people, um, with all the different issues that you work on, if they decide to participate, to work on something like this, do you have any advice for them on how to get started and how to go about it? I would say the great thing about the current era is that the barrier to entry is extremely low, right? Um, I think there are so many young people out there who are putting their voice out, um, who are pushing for some level of public awareness, um, and trying to make that change happen. What I would urge young people is that always try to look from the problem and then work your way backwards, right? So can you identify what is the issue that you specifically need to change? What is the legislation that you specifically need to address? What is the social problem that you specifically need to uh, affect for that change to happen? and therefore work constructively to change that thing, right? So while the barrier for entry has become very low for you to advocate and create awareness and speak up about an issue, but the process towards change is still very long, right? So I think more young people should be change makers instead of just thought leaders, right? Or instead of just people are just keyboard warriors, mm. right? Uh, I think that's something that's, that's very important. Um, and also as a, as, a, as, a, as a related note, I think that anger is easy, right? But patience, strategy, and long-term thinking is much more difficult to do. So I, I urge people to, to choose the, the difficult path if you want to make change happen. All right, I think the last question I have is basically to uh, ask you about 
what you're already doing, right? It's yeah. uh, it's available on the website, but you know, do you want to tell people if they want to follow you? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure you are. You know, I, I know that for a fact that you're very very active on social media on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Uh, now starting on TikTok, correct? Right? You have uh, some really really nice TikTok videos. Uh, so, you know you can just mention to people how do they find uh, out about you on the internet yeah. uh, you know where do they go who do you know where do they follow sure so I am on all major social media platforms um, so I am uh, quite active on uh, Twitter and TikTok uh, and also someone on Instagram um, for all all social media my uh, uh, you can search for Tarma Pele right it's all the same um, or you can also look up my organization Undi 18 Undi 18 um, on all platforms if you search it it'll probably be the first thing that will pop up so yeah I think it's quite easy to find me and quite easy to learn about the work that I do um, most importantly please look out and join some of our programs that's coming up uh, we are always looking for interested parties young people um, and also just people who are supportive about the cause right um, because I am not egoistic enough to think that I can do this alone Right, we ha if we want to win, we have got to do this together. We got to organize together. We got to work together, and we got to be strategic about this fight uh, together because it's really about all our futures, right? Uh, and this is the fight that's worth winning. Uh, is there any, you know, any specific ask or requests uh, to the audience, like you know, specific programs or something like they can no, really I engage I, I with? I don't think so, lah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so just visit your website, follow you on social media. Uh, that's great, and we also uh, include all this, the you know, the links to your social media websites, all in our show notes. So yeah. if people want to find out about it, they listen to this, they can find out in the uh, show notes that we'll publish. Cool. With that, um, thank you so much yeah. again for being the first ever guest of the Game Changers for Good podcast. Nice. Uh, I really appreciate you, Tama. Uh, yeah. You've been a great friend. Uh, yeah. Also, someone I constantly learn from. Mm. Uh, I'm just continuously, you know, and constantly are in awe with what you do and how much that you do. Mm. So, thank you so much uh, for being a Malaysian, firstly, you know, because you bring all these chains to Malaysia, yeah. <laughs> a country where, you know, we live in. Yeah. Uh, just thank you so much. Awesome. Th thank you so much for having me. And uh, hopefully, it was, it was good. Yeah. It's very, very fun for me. Uh, I hope that, you know, maybe sometime we can have another conversation again. I'm can. pretty sure we have, there's so many things we, we, we still can talk about. Can, for sure, for right? sure. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Tarma. Uh, we'll catch up again soon. Uh, that's it. Bye-bye. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? Or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity? Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia.